So I wonder what are the dumbest things that uh, people have ever said to you? Well, probably one of the dumbest things that I've heard someone say to me is this. I think I was in, I think I was in regional Australia. So you imagine in regional uh, country, probably country New South Wales, there's not a lot of Asian people. And um, guy comes up to me and goes, hey, you're Chinese, right? And I go, yep, yep. I have a friend from China. Maybe you know him too. I'm like, mm, yeah, okay. There's 1.2 billion of them, but sure, maybe I'll know your friend. Um, not to let myself off the hook. The dumbest thing I've ever said to someone. So there's, um, there's this uh, Christian author, pretty famous guy. I won't tell you who because I'm too embarrassed. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of, I'm a real fan. And uh, he was speaking at an event, and I happened to bump into him in the toilet. Of all places, the men's toilet. So I'm there in the toilet next to him at the urinal. And I said, I um, really like your books. And that's it. While we were both doing our business, which after that I thought, of all the things you could say and of all the times to say, that's probably not the best thing. Um, I also Googled dumb things people say. And uh, this is the one that caught my attention. Um, lady at work just got a nose job and says to the person next to her, I didn't do it for me. I don't want my kids to be born with big noses. Think about it. Think about it. Just waiting for people who are slow to catch up. Okay. Um, the reason why we talk about dumb things is, uh, let's be honest, probably the dumbest things that are said to people are often in the face of suffering, yeah? And this is not so funny, is it? Dumb things to say to someone, and these are all real, who is a cancer patient undergoing chemo. Oh, what doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. Dumb things to say to the person who's just lost a child. Oh, I know exactly how you feel when my dog died. Dumb things to say to the person who's just lost their dog. At least it wasn't your child. Dumb things to say to the person who's just lost their job. Now you get to follow your dreams. To the depressed, maybe if you just got out of bed and did some exercise. To the single or divorced, you just haven't met your soulmate yet. But don't worry, I'm sure you will. Let's be honest. Things like that do get said. Maybe you've said them. Maybe it's been said to you. Um, I really don't want our time today looking at the topic of suffering to be one of those occasions where dumb and insensitive and flippant things are said. Because let's be honest, the last week even has been massive amounts of suffering in the world. At least these are the ones we just hear of. Three-year-old was shot and killed by an abusive father with his own shotgun. Hurricane Harvey in the U.S., you've heard about that. The monsoon floods in Bangladesh, India, and South Asia, over 1,200 people dead so far. Millions displaced. Ethnic violence in Myanmar, over 100 of the Rohingya ethnic group slaughtered, including women and children. That's in the world. Well, as a pastor, I get the privilege of walking with people who are going through suffering and just in our church family. Multiple people battling cancer. One who is currently dying of cancer. Multiple people with ongoing mental illness. Those who have suffered from domestic violence, survived sexual abuse, 
those who have lost children, those who have lost parents, siblings, those who are unemployed and struggling to make ends meet. Today's Father's Day, but for some this is an extremely painful day. As a pastor, the two that have come closest to me um, that I can mention here, a number of years ago, and some of you who've been with us for a few years will remember when a six-year-old boy who had just started coming to our church with his family was hit by a car and killed in Hurstville. You will never know the grief like the grief of parents who's lost a child. I was there at St. George Hospital with the parents as his body lay there. Or one that I experienced not as a pastor, but as a friend, a friend that I grew up with, I've known since primary school. We're in the same year at school. We shared HSC notes in year 12. Having her die of cancer at the age of 39, leaving behind a young son and a husband. You see, it's real, isn't it? This is suffering. and You, you can't look at a topic like this and be glib, be superficial, say dumb things. And I hope that we don't. I hope that I don't. Um, suffering is one of those big questions, maybe the biggest question when it comes to Christianity, isn't it? The pastor, he's passed away now, the pastor, theologian John Stott said, and I think he's right, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and love. He's got a point there. And I hope in this next half an hour just to do as much justice as I can to this tricky topic. And um, if you're here and you're being invited along and you're interested in this topic, I really hope and pray I do as good as a job as possible. So how I'm going to do this is tackle a few questions. If you've got one of those bulletins when you came in, you'll see a, a fairly detailed outline. It's usually not that detailed, but today there's, there's just, I think it's, it, it takes something of a, a little bit more detail to go through. And there's a number of questions I want to um, look at, um, three in fact. And the first is dealing with the logical question. I know the logical question isn't enough in and of itself because suffering is a personal, painful thing. And we won't end with logic, but I think it's worth starting with the logical problem of suffering. So the logic goes like this. And you'll see on the uh, slide. If assumption one is true that an all-powerful God could end all suffering, and assumption two is true that an all-loving God would want to end all suffering, But the fact that suffering exists leads you to the conclusion that therefore an all-powerful, all-loving God does not exist. Now that's often the logic thrown um, in the face of suffering of why people say, you Christians believe in this sort of God? Well, he must not exist. Now, of course, a way to think about the logic um, is to question the assumptions. That's often the best way when you see a logic like this is to question whether all of these assumptions are true. Um, Before we go to the right way of doing it, I want to tell you what the wrong ways of questioning assumptions are. And that is, one wrong way is to question assumption one, to say, well, maybe God, oh, sorry, assumption two, maybe God is not all loving. 
Right, some people will say this, well, love and goodness aren't essential to God, or not, not at least as essential as God be, being all-powerful and sovereign. In other words, God can do whatever He likes. Who are you to question? God is not defined by something external to Him, like love or goodness. Everything He does is what He does. So you're not to question that. Now, I want to tentatively suggest that Islam's answer to suffering leans in this direction. That ultimately, Allah is all-powerful and His will overrides everything. So, love, though may be true, is not essential. It's not as essential as His power or sovereignty. I think that's a wrong way. I'll show you why why in a moment. But the the other wrong way is to question assumption one and say, well, maybe God is not all-powerful. There is a view that maybe God doesn't know the future either. The future is open to God. He is all-loving, but the reason why He doesn't end suffering is because He is not all-powerful, not even all-knowing. And so this says that God's sovereignty is not as important as human choice or human autonomy. That God will choose to limit His intervention in the world because human freedom is a much more important good than ending suffering. Now, the problem with that is, of course, the Bible doesn't talk about God like that because the Bible says that even in disaster and calamity, God is still in control. The other problem is that there are things that happen in this world that aren't linked to human autonomy or human choice, right? Like, for example, natural disasters, monsoons, and hurricanes. And why would God choose not to intervene in those because they have nothing to do with human choice. Do you see what I mean? So the God is not all-powerful thing doesn't really work either. There's another false um, way you can go about it, and that is number three, that suffering is a direct punishment for sin. And by the way, this is the Eastern religion solution, particularly in Hinduism. It's called karma. Heard of karma? It sounds attractive. Karma is whatever bad happens to you, it's because you somehow in this life or in a former life deserved it. Everything comes around. Sounds attractive, but actually is one of the most unjust responses to suffering because it leads people to do nothing for those who are suffering since they might be paying for their crimes. You see a homeless person begging, if you believe in karma, then you should let them be. Why? Because they might be paying for something that they've done in a previous life. Unfortunately, there is a Christian version of karma. You might hear when disasters strike, like in Christchurch, earthquake a number of years ago, some people will come out and say, well, that's God's punishment for the gay community. Or the Haiti earthquake in 2010 is a punishment because Haitians are into the occult and witchcraft. Or Hurricane Katrina a number of years ago was punishment for the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. And I'm really sorry that People who claim to be Christians say these things because that all is, in the end, a Christian version of karma, and I think it's wrong. And if you want proof of that, that a passage that Amanda just read out to us is showing you from the mouth of Jesus, and we won't look in that passage in detail, but remember what happened? There was a horrible act of violence, Pilate, who killed a bunch of Jews. There was an act of accident, the Tower of Siloam falling down. People in Jesus' day wanted Jesus to say they were more deserving than others. In other words, karma. And Jesus' answer, remember, is no, they are not more guilty than others. These things didn't happen because it is direct punishment for sin. Not because these victims who died under Pilate or the towers falling 
are more sinful. Right? It comes from Jesus' words. The karma answer is the wrong answer. So what are the right biblical answers then? Well, the first one is to say that the Bible does paint the picture of suffering as caused ultimately, and the word ultimate is important here, ultimately because of sin. See, the Bible's storyline is that God created a world without suffering, a world that humanity under Him could rule in a perfect way. But when humans turned against God, a rupture formed in the good creation, and everything was affected. Now we see this in a passage like Romans, which says that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up till the present time. And it's talking in the context of suffering. It's saying suffering doesn't just affect people, it affects the whole created order. That when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, turned away from God, everything was affected. Everything, including the natural world order, including monsoons and hurricanes and earthquakes, that's all been affected. And the Bible's view is, even though God is in control and He does know the future, it never makes God the one who causes suffering directly. That's really important, right? It doesn't make God the one who causes suffering directly. So it's not right to say that God made your cancer grow. It's not right to say God killed that six-year-old boy in the car accident. It's not right to say God sent the hurricane. The Bible will use language like God allows it, but that's not the same as saying God is responsible for it because the ultimate origin and reason for suffering is sin, that we've turned away from God. Wars, murder, rape are due to our sin. That seems more direct, but the Bible also says natural disasters. Sickness, cancer, is the natural order gone out of whack. That is the ultimate origin of suffering in the Bible storyline. But the second thing to note is this. Because you might be thinking, well, if God, sure, maybe the Bible won't say that God directly causes these things, but if He could stop it and He doesn't stop it, then it does make him partially responsible, doesn't it? Which comes back to the logic, right? Remember the assumptions? If an all-powerful, all-loving God could stop suffering and wants to stop suffering, but he doesn't, then maybe he doesn't exist. Well, that's one way of thinking about it. But again, as I said, there is a way of questioning the assumption, and that is to add... Okay, don't, yeah, that's it. To add assumption three. See, this might be true as well. That an all-powerful God could end all suffering. An all-loving God would desire to end all suffering. But an all-powerful and an all-loving God may have good reasons unknown to us for temporarily allowing suffering. Do you see, if you add assumption three, logically, right... Though suffering exists, the conclusion now is a different conclusion. Suffering doesn't disprove the existence of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Now, I want to suggest to you that is the Bible's answer for why suffering exists, why God would choose to allow suffering. And you see it in a passage like Genesis 50 verse 20, where someone who's just been 
um, sold into slavery by his own brothers or nearly killed. A guy called Joseph, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In other words, the Bible will say that there are reasons, but mostly unknown to us, why God sometimes allows evil and suffering. And that amount of evil and suffering maybe at times seems to us a vast concentration. There are some people who get, I don't know why, but more suffering than others. Those among us, some of you have suffered all your lives. There are those of us relatively speaking, have suffered very little, at least so far. And the answer is, we don't know why you and not me, God hasn't revealed it, but there are answers. He just hasn't revealed it yet. Now, that may not be good enough for you. You might be thinking, no, 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 that's not good enough. That's just worming your way out of it. If God has good reasons, why don't we know? Why doesn't he reveal? Well, might I gently suggest that in order for you to know all the answers of why God might temporarily allow certain things must make you somehow above God. You have to in some way say that what I see or what I have a right to see or my analysis of the situation as a human being is thorough enough that if I can't see any good reasons, there must not be good reasons. Do you see what I mean? To make that kind of judgment does have to put you in some way as the sovereign of the universe. In some way you have to say, because I don't see there's a good reason, there must not be a good reason. Well, the Bible's answer is, we're limited, we're finite, we don't see the whole picture. God does. He knows what the reasons are. He doesn't explain to us all the reasons now. He will one day. But right now, he doesn't owe us all the explanations. So that's the logical question, all right? How you can go from an all-loving, all-powerful God to still believe that maybe this kind of God exists, even though suffering exists. But that's just the logical one. We need to now deal with the more experiential, emotional, personal questions. And I think the biggest question then is, well, if this is true, and God does exist, all-powerful, all-loving, then why how, sorry, is he going to fix suffering? Because even if the logic works, it doesn't make it more acceptable just because we might be suffering a lot at the moment. Well, the first thing I want to say is this. Though we don't have any immediate answers, we do have some foundational things the Bible tells us. And that is firstly, God hates suffering. He does. He hates suffering. His heart bleeds at the way that our world has been ruptured, that creation is the way it is, that you and I are suffering the way we are. If you want to have a look at these Bible passages, it talks about how God is, on Father's Day, God is a father who has compassion on his children. The Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And because he hates suffering, the Bible says he will do something about it. He will work righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. In fact, more than once on a number of occasions, the Bible talks about how God is on the side of those who are suffering, the oppressed, the widowed, the marginalized, the sick. And the Bible says there is a day coming, the day when God will reveal all the reasons and all the answers, but it's also the day when God will make all the wrong things right, including suffering. And so that leads me 
to the next thing that God will do, which is the future. God will end suffering, the Bible says. Yes, there is a future coming. He is so loving and so powerful that He will restore everything that was lost due to sin. And so the picture right at the end of the Bible, the last book says this. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The Christian hope, the promise of God is this. That one day heaven will come to earth. One day all the horrible S's, suffering, sadness, sickness, sin will be dealt with. Well, what's not to desire about that? I mean, it sounds great, doesn't it? But if you're suffering, then you might be thinking, well, why not now? I mean, why didn't God do something about that before Hurricane Harvey and monsoons this year in India? Why didn't he stop suffering then? Well, the Bible says the reason that God doesn't just patch up suffering the way we want to here, there, over there, is because God is waiting for the day to do a complete job of it. He's going to deal with both the shoots and the roots. He's going to uproot the weeds from the root down. And if, if the Bible's view is correct, that suffering is ultimately a result of sin, our turning away from God, our independence from God and trying to be God instead of God, then guess what? When He comes to bring heaven to earth, He will also need to deal with the roots of our suffering. Which means he will need to wipe out sin itself and judge all the sins that have been left undealt with and unforgiven. That gets part of the problem that's swept away. And you see the problem with that, don't you? Because what if I've sinned, and we all have, but I'm not yet right with God? What if my sins haven't been dealt with? What if I haven't been forgiven? Then when he comes to make all things new and sin is wiped away, then I get wiped away, don't I? Well, that's true. That's what the Bible says. And this is the reason why God has withheld that beautiful picture of revelation. It's because 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. This is why God hasn't ended it all yet, because when He does, He's going to do a complete job of it. But He's being patient with you. You might be sitting here today. You might have been asked to come by your Christian friend, and whether or not you believe what they believe, please understand where they're coming from. They want you to have an opportunity to have your sins dealt with, to have a relationship with God right, because they, like me, believe that one day God is going to come and judge. Yes, it's the end of suffering. But if by then you haven't given your life to Jesus, had your sins forgiven, it's going to be too late for you as well. That's why they want you to be here. But probably the last question we need to deal with is, number three, how do I know that God cares about me in my suffering? The two questions may now make some sense to you intellectually, but 
if you're suffering and you're going through a hard time, and a lot of you are, then what about me? What about what I'm going through right now? What does God do for me? Well, there's a few things I want to say that the Bible tells us. One is that God actually became human. He became a man. We won't turn to it. I won't show you on the screen. But in the Gospel of John, one of the biographies of Jesus, it starts off by saying that God, the eternal God, actually took on flesh, human flesh. He became one of us. He made his dwelling among us. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus, who is God in human flesh, himself suffered. He was tempted. He was tested. He went through what it means to be human. And I want to tell you now that no other religion claims that God, their God, cared enough to fully become a man. And to take that humanity on as something that he will have for the rest of eternity. Other religions will talk about how their gods might have become human um, for a short period of time. But it's usually not uh, fully human, it's often superhuman, you know, kind of half human. Well, Christianity is the only one that talks about God fully becoming a person. And so much so that Islam and Judaism, who are also monotheistic faiths, consider the Christian version of God becoming human as blasphemous. It's unique amongst Christians that God cared enough to become a human. See, the glory of Christianity is that is what we call the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. God become human. He became one of us. In fact, I want to say that He suffered more than any of us. You think about the way that God became a human. He was born poor. He worked all His life. He lost His dad when He was young. He was misunderstood and opposed. He was betrayed by His closest friend. He was falsely charged. He was tortured and crucified by the age of 33. Younger than I am today. That's our God. He became a man. He suffered. Now you might be thinking, well, that's a lot of suffering. That may be suffering more than me, but not others. I mean, other people have been crucified and betrayed before. Some people have been tortured even more, perhaps, arguably, than Jesus did. Well, the key is to remember then, isn't it, that we're talking about God having become a human and being crucified. In other words, God, the creator of the universe, was crucified. Jesus, when he was crucified, lost far more than we will ever lose in our suffering because he is infinite God who has always enjoyed infinite life. Then his pain is that much more infinite at death. Do you you understand? All right, so the fact that God would suffer in the way that Jesus suffered, blows the intensity of suffering right out of the park. He suffered more than any of us can possibly imagine, being God who went on the cross. But Jesus' death was part of God's plan. It had a purpose. And we sung about it before, and you may already know about it, but it's worth mentioning again. Jesus' death is the way that God deals with the root problem of suffering, sin. In dying on the cross, He deals with our sin by bearing it in our place, by suffering spiritual abandonment and spiritual death so that we would never have to. In dying on the cross, God deals with the root cause of suffering, our sin. He pays for it all so that we can be forgiven, so that when heaven does come to earth, We won't be part of the problem, but we'll be part of the solution, part of the the new. 
but it reminds us that because of Jesus' death, God understands. You see what it's saying there? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He shared in our humanity, and then he dies and suffers, and through the suffering destroys the power of death and sin. The things that make death most scary. The things that make suffering most horrible. And so one Christian writer says this, God's answer to the problem of suffering is that he came right down into it. Many Christians try to get off God off the hook for suffering. God put himself on the hook, so to speak, the cross. You see, you can't accuse God of not caring if you belong in the Christian view of the world. Our God cared so much. He became one of us. He suffered and died. He paid for the cause of our suffering so that we would never have to. But last of all, God also resurrected. In Jesus rising again from the dead three days later, God says that guarantee of heaven on earth, the new heavens and new earth in Revelation that we read, is going to happen. Jesus becomes the first part of that new creation when he rose from the dead. And so those who follow Jesus can experience new life. I mean, why is it that Jan, we heard earlier, can say that before her cancer, she didn't know any peace and joy, but now she does. And even the cancer itself, horrible as it was, is the greatest thing that's ever happened. I mean, where does that logic come from? It comes because Christians have tasted the new creation. When they follow Jesus, Jesus comes and influences their life so much. Or in Jan's words, Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of us so that the future joy and the peace that we will all experience one day, you get a little bit now. And that's a promise for all people. So that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain, Christians have so often said, yes, it's hard, it sucks, I don't wish this on anyone, but can I tell you, I feel God's presence and joy in a way that is unexplainable. It's because Jesus is risen and gives us his presence. So let me conclude. There may be a couple of groups of people here today. Maybe, um, maybe you're a skeptic. You have your doubts. You have your doubts even about what I said, and that's fine, perfectly at liberty to disagree and question. We're Christians. We're not a cult. We love questions. We love disagreement. We love having to talk through these things. So we're not afraid of questions being asked. Um, But can I say, if you are a skeptic and you're skeptical about the Christian version that I've outlined, can you at least be skeptical about the alternatives as well? Suffering is a problem for every religion. And every religion will try and give its answers. So at least... Be as skeptical about the other options. But you might be thinking, okay, that's why I'm not religious. I'm an atheist or an agnostic. Well, can I just say, can you at least be skeptical about atheism's approach to the problem? Because it's a problem for atheism as well. The famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens, said while he was dying of cancer, he's now passed away, he said, I'm here as a product of process of evolution, which doesn't make 
very many exceptions and which rates life relatively cheaply. He's essentially saying, I'm dying of cancer, but you know what? That's evolution for you. Richard Dawkins says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. You're at liberty to be an atheist. But atheist's solution to the problem of suffering is actually to say, what's the problem? There's no problem. Suffering is just evolution. Suffering is blind, pitiless indifference. Suffering just happens. So if you're suffering and you're questioning, you don't really get to question as an atheist. Is that the alternative that you want? But if you are a seeker, If you are a seeker, and, and, and Jesus said in Luke 13, suffering, remember, that the passage we just read is not a result of Christian karma, right? It's not coming back to bite you. But if you are suffering, then often suffering, like it was for Jan, is that personal wake-up call. God is using a horrible thing like cancer to, to help wake Jan up. And He might be doing that for you. Wake-up call. And so don't wait until it's too late. Because if you're a seeker, this may be the reason why you're seeking, um, C.S. Lewis, the Narnia, um, famous Narnia author, says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in, his, in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to, re- to rouse or to wake a deaf world. He wrote this while he was, his wife was dying of cancer. It may be that God is getting you to seek seriously for the first time. You might be here particularly because something has happened to you. Let me say, don't waste that. Don't waste it. I mentioned that a longtime church friend of mine who passed away at age 39 of cancer, when she had finally been told and her and her husband been told that there were no more treatments left for her, that it was just a matter of days or weeks before she would die and leave her young son and husband. I mean, how do you get that news, right? You can imagine the devastation as they received that kind of news. Or both of them though, were followers of Jesus. And her husband wrote this when they found out that news. I'll just read it out to you. He wrote this. Today we were sent a Bible passage saying that though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And that seems very evident for us now. Despite these procedures and symptoms, she, that's his wife, is still her. Her character and love of God shines bright. She's incredibly brave, personable, lovely, servant-hearted, seeking the good of others, particular about things being done well, enjoying good food and loving her family. She's still the person I married and love and promised to stay with till death do us part or Jesus returns. However, today, for the first time, I prayed that amidst the pain that she was undergoing, that she would be able to go where there is no more pain, no more tears or crying. I prayed that I'd be willing for God to take her to heaven, away from this broken world where she is suffering. Well, she died a week later after those words were written. 
in the arms of her husband. See, the fact is everyone will suffer. And if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. Everyone will die. But not everyone gets to live like this. That's my point. Those who have Jesus have something that even suffering and death cannot destroy. And if you're a seeker, God is offering that to you today. So are you willing to come back and find out more? It's probably the best thing you can do. Set aside the next few Sundays, 11 o'clock. Next week we'll look at intolerance. The week after, inequality. The week after that, we'll look at the problem of religions. I want to also mention to you a great opportunity that we've, we've not done before is these fresh suppers. If you're doubtful of making all five, don't worry, just come to one. Just come to the first one. If you like it, come back. That's an interactive, non-threatening, casual way for you to investigate more. Right? If you're a seeker and God has led you to this, don't, don't leave it. Just find out more. At least if, if, you, if you do decide to say no to Jesus, you will have done everything you can to find out more first. That's the best thing you can do, to find out more. Come to Fresh. Come back next week. But I also realize that there might be people here, and you know, for you, it's not the beginning of a journey. It's probably the end of a long journey. And if something I've said, something that you've heard, maybe it was Jan's testimony, something, has just made you think, yeah, look, I, I could wait. I, I want to find out more. But you know what? Like Jan with the radio station, I, I'm ready today to do something about it. Well, if that's you, then there is at the bottom of your outlines a little prayer. And um, it's just the kind of prayer that in a moment I will pray. And if you agree, just pray along in the quietness of your heart. If you want relationship with Jesus to start now and to have that kind of hope in the midst of suffering. Again, this won't be for everyone, but it might be for you. And if it is for you, don't leave it. If God's been working in you for a long time, you might have been coming for a while or other things have happened before coming to this church that you made you think, yep, today's the day. Why don't you pray this with me now? So I'm going to ask us to bow our heads. I'm going to lead in this prayer. If you want to pray it, do it in the quietness of your own heart. If you're not ready to pray it, or if you're already a follower of Jesus, pray something that's uh, appropriate in your circumstance. But for those who want to pray, let's pray this prayer now. Dear God, I want relationship with you to start today. I know that I've sinned and need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins. Please help me to follow and serve him until he returns to make all things new. Amen.